Warning! This episode contains foul language and mentions of murder, sexual abuse, bullying, drug usage, and death by soda machine. Podcast for all things strange and unusual, literary and cinematic, horrifying and nostalgic, and sometimes we venture into the dead zone. This week especially, we're hopping into our 1958 Plymouth Furies, rolling up our Rita Hayworth posters, and heading into Derry as we chat about the man, the myth, the legend, Stephen King. He's published 64 novels, five nonfiction books, has written over 200 short stories, has had at least 80 movie adaptations made from his work, and has inspired writers, horror movie junkies, and losers like us for over 50 years. In this episode, we're going to talk about how on earth he could possibly still be churning out a novel every year at age 74, our favorite books, movies, and short stories, and reminiscing over our most beloved characters, spookiest scares, and most tender moments. Today we find out why sometimes dead is better. (laughs) My name is Ashley, and this is my lovely co-host, Lauren. Hello, weirdos. (laughs) And joining us today, one of the biggest King fans in history, so big he has his own podcast dedicated to Stevie himself. From one of my favorite shows out there, the Losers Club podcast, it's Randall Colburn. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Hi, Randy. So nice to have you on our show. I got to go on yours a couple weeks ago, and it was awesome. Yes, we loved having you on, and uh, we look forward to having you on more. Yeah, I'm coming on for Everything's Eventual. Yeah, which has been a fun reread. Yes, it has so far. (laughs) I haven't read it since, I think, eighth grade. Or no, eighth or ninth grade. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. Randall, first of all, introduce yourself, plug your show, but also tell us what got you into Stephen King. Uh, what got me into Stephen King was uh, the 1994 Stand miniseries, uh, oh. which was on ABC, I believe. I my my brother, someone like borrowed the double VHS set, and I think I just watched it when I got home from school one day. Uh, I was always scared of horror, and there was something accessible about that because it was a network tv thing so it couldn't get too violent but i loved sort of the big ensemble of it and i kind of really fell in love and then i got the book which was you know the uncut 1200 page version (laughs) yeah and i was really young at the time but i saw that as sort of a huge um i don't know it was like a daunting sort of thing and something i was very excited to sort of tackle as a very young person i i was always reading dark stuff when i was way too young i stole like helter skelter the charles manson book from my mom's closet when i was like probably nine yeah and i was obsessed with it and it was funny because i i'd already read half of it and um you know i read all the bloodiest parts and my mom was like oh my god why'd you take that and then she saw how far i was and she's like well you already read the dark shit so let's just talk about it so so she was cool about it 
But yeah, so um, yeah, and then I just I was kind of just a diehard fan, and he really influenced a lot of my work. And then you know I went through my college phase of thinking I was too smart for Stephen King or so on and so forth. But then, you know, you eventually, I think one of the parts of growing up is re-embracing a lot of the things you loved from sort of an adult perspective. And totally. and honestly, that was kind of what the uh, the podcast, which the Losers Club podcast, which we started in 2017, me and a bunch of my friends here in Chicago, we were all working for a site called uh, Consequence of Sound at the time. Mm-hmm. And we, um, we wanted to start a podcast uh, just because we we thought we would be good at it because we're already like, right. like whenever we hang out, it's like my, my wife describes it as like a snake eating its own tail. Cause we just talk and talk and talk and, 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 you know, we figured, well, why not? Like we have a lot of shared interests and we, you know, one of the things we, we knew is we all love Stephen King. And so we kind of just embarked on this journey and we had no idea if anybody would listen. And here we are five years later and we just interviewed Stephen King like a couple weeks ago. So it was insane. Yeah, it was really cool. And, uh, and, you know, it was it was neat. I mean, and you know, that was never the point of the podcast was to interview Stephen King, we really right. wanted to approach it from a critical, like sort of literary perspective, because, mm-hmm. you know, we're not really into fan casts. And we, uh, like, we all kind of come from uh, critical writing. And we didn't want to like, start a podcast to trash Stephen King, obviously, why would you commit yourself to that? But, you know, I think part of the joy of loving Stephen King is also hating him a little bit, because he'll write the most beautiful sentence you've ever read and then he'll write the worst sentence you've ever read and and that's sort of the unique joy of king is that he's, he can be so high-minded and literary and then be so like he'll just write about farts for like 10 basic, pages right. and, yeah yeah and sometimes it's great for sure yeah and sometimes it, it doesn't work but and yeah. we'll talk about some of that later i'm sure but but yeah so um you can check that out you know uh wherever you listen to podcasts we have a patreon uh patreon.com slash the barons and yeah and i mean um um, you know, and elsewhere outside of that, I'm, you know, I'm a writer. Currently, I'm an editor at uh, Entertainment Weekly, but I also, you know, have worked at a lot of different media sites over the years. And uh, as Ashley knows, I've, I've also worked as a playwright extensively and uh, and I'm currently writing a novel as well. So a lot, lot cool. of various things I'm dipping my toe in. So, yeah. That's did, awesome. Did you guys meet in college? I actually just realized I don't know mm-hmm. how you two met. Okay, it was college. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we went to college together. Um, he was an upperclassman when I was a, a lower classman? Lower classman, <laughs> yeah. right? Not under, yes. underclassman? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so or is it? Um, is it underclass? We, it is. I, I actually, as I was saying it, I was like, lower classman? I know. Um, no, so <laughs> Rachel, who was just on the show, we did a biology episode with her. You were around her age, so they were a little older uh. than me. Yeah, I was kind mm-hmm, of the new yeah. kid on the block, so I didn't get to I get I didn't get to hang. But <laughs> we've obviously remained friends over the years, and yeah. we started our podcast in the same year. Lauren and I started it's in twenty seventeen too, yes. and I remember kind of like reaching out to you and being like, "You have a podcast too." <laughs> yeah, she has been talking about you guys for like such a long time because it felt like we came up at the same time, and then suddenly we mm-hmm. were like, "Wow, Losers Club is killing it over there!" Like you guys are, <laughs> yeah, just, hell yeah, it's been fun to watch. Yeah, I wish that we could have, I wish we would have been able to connect earlier. I think it just, you know, it slips oh, off God. people's radars sometimes. Yes. But yeah, But I'm glad Scheduling's we finally Scheduling's a nightmare. Did, you know. Me yeah. Yeah, exactly. too. I know. Now Ashley gets to do all of her Stephen King loving on your yes. show. It's the best. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm way, I definitely can be critical. Um, I'm more critical, I think, of the film adaptations than I As definitely you, oh, yeah. am of As his original work. be. Oof, but I, I'm such a fangirl over Stephen yeah. King. Like, even when it's bad, it's still good for me. Like, even yeah. when it's bad, I'm like, you know what? 
did I waste 20 hours? No. No, I did <laughs> I not. Didn't. There's really nothing else like him, you know, and I think that's true. something yes. we're realizing. One of the new series we started on the pod is, uh, we call it On Writers, and uh, which is very clever, I know. And we, uh, <laughs> we just interview like other fiction, uh, horror fiction writers, me and my friend Mel, who we have like a really kind of big... Um, uh, contributor base at Losers Club. So we kind of all have our beats and, and yeah. uh, Mel is a very literary friend of mine. And so she and I decided we wanted to, you know, talk to other modern horror authors. Cause one of the questions we always get is like, well, if I like Stephen King, who else can I read? And right. honestly, that's, there's a lot of horror writers out there, but there's few people that do what he does. Yeah. And yeah. so I think one of the things we wanted to do was talk to other modern horror writers who we know love him and I think most modern horror writers do because it's kind of hard not to be influenced by him yeah. and uh, and sort of ask them like who do you think are you know obviously we talk to people we we like and we recommend uh, their work but then they also sort of tell us where we should be looking to scratch that itch so right. it's been a fun it's been a fun uh, series we've been doing Lauren um, you have a different relationship with Stephen King how did you get into Stephen King Oh, gosh. I think it started with, I mean, so cliche, but I think it started with The Shining because I saw that at a way too young age. And yeah, for sure. Was just the TV I mean, version or the uh, Kubrick? Uh, Kubrick. So okay. it was like, uh, I, it's so funny because I think I've talked about this on the show before. It took me until adulthood to fully understand The Shining and appreciate it. And obviously, all of the, sure. you know, symbolism going in that, of course. But. I remember watching it as a kid and being so fascinated by it and thinking, like, who is this guy? And then my dad being so ashamed, like, looking at me like, you don't know Stephen King's work. And he just had, like, a You're mountain like, dad, of I'm Stephen seven. King books. Yeah, I'm a child. <laughs> no, my dad has always loved Stephen King. He's liked a lot of horror writers. And speaking of basic bees, as we said before, like, Dean Koontz is another one totally. that my dad enjoys. and. He had all of them, but mostly he would brag about, you know, how he had read every Stephen King book and was such a big fan, blah, blah, blah. So it was kind of my dad taking me under his wing and being like, okay, if you have interest in this, let's look into this. And definitely I am more heavy on the movies than the books, which I know you two are much more into the books, but COVID with nothing to do had me reading some more. So I'm finally getting more Stephen King books under my belt, which has been so fun because the books are definitely better for the most part. Yeah. And it took me years to find that out, but I'm happy to be a part of it now. Well, welcome. I, <laughs> as our listeners have probably heard, uh, horror movies basically shaped my entire life growing up. My house was the house you went to if you wanted to see uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or Tales from the Crypt in third grade. <laughs> yep. Your house would be the one I would beg to sleep over at so I could watch it. <laughs> And my mom got a couple calls that was like, what did you let my child watch at your house? <laughs> my mom's like, I'm not responsible for what my uh, yeah. psycho daughter shows your kids. <laughs> Sorry about it. But I obviously loved movies like Pet Cemetery, Carrie, Creep Show, but I didn't know that they were based on books and stories by the same guy. And I think it was probably sixth grade, fifth grade when I got a copy of Night Shift, which was a short story mm. collection. Oh, yeah. and. I got it specifically because I was told, um, I think my aunt told me that Children of the Corn was a short story by this guy, Stephen something. <laughs> and so I devoured this book and the next book I read was It, which is insane because That's up to this insane. point, Night Shift was the longest book I'd ever read at 300 pages. 
So, um, yeah, 1,200 pages was was uh, pretty hefty. And it happened to be the most horrifying 1,200 pages of my life. And uh, I actually credit Stephen King as being the reason I never read the Harry Potter books because (laughs) I... Remember in grade school, everyone was going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over this Harry Potter stuff. And I tried to read it. And at that point, like, I was too far gone. I can't go from... <laughs> this is for babies. Yeah. <laughs> can't I can't go that. from an interdimensional extraterrestrial child-eating monster and, like, child sexual abuse and suicide and Munchausen by proxy and kids getting bit in half to boy wizards. I, like, missed the You can't the go to Sorcerer's <laughs> like, Stone. Yeah. Like, yeah, I just can't. can't. Sorcerer's Stone has nothing on Stevie King. No, that's... That's totally so, uh, understandable. I get it. You were just too above the rest. You, just you too were already it. too. Uh, yeah, far. I just sort of, that's all I craved. I mean, I read, that's uh, true crime and horror novels. I mean, still to this day, Joe will be like, what are you reading? And I'm like, well, someone died. And <laughs> they are, and he's like, yeah, okay. Didn't that's know if you I, mixed it up. That's no. what I loved about Stephen King was I was always reading true crime as well, but it was like crime only and like it was a little more realistic. And I feel like that's yeah. another credit I can give to Stephen King, like starting to read his books was that I loved that we got to branch off into like the weirdest shit I have ever read. It's my yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite. Yeah, the fantastical, the supernatural, of course, but also just so weird. That is why I love Fair. Stephen King is every book I read, I think how how did this enter your brain as an idea i don't understand but i'm obsessed with it like i it was just the kind of writing i needed in my life well today's episode is kind of our little love letter to stephen king who whether you like him or not is one of the most talented writers that has ever lived so i'm just going to start with the basics i'll spew a few out before we get to our questions Stephen King was born in 1947 in portland maine which is no surprise there's a reason most of his stories take place there He grew up without a father. His dad left when he was, I think, three. So he and his brother were raised by a single mom. Um, Stephen got a bachelor's in English from the University of Maine in 1970 and married his wife, Tabitha, in 1971. And he started his writing career by submitting short stories to magazines with names like Startling Mystery Stories and Penthouse. And that's how he made some extra cash while also working as a laborer and eventually a teacher of English classes at a public high school. But his big, big break came when he wrote a story about a young girl who had the ability to move things with her mind. He actually threw the story away at first, but his wife read it and encouraged him to keep going. And thank goodness she did, because Carrie was officially published in 1974, question mark. And the paperback sold a million copies. And three years later, when the movie Carrie was released, they sold about four million more. So my first question for you guys, what do you think makes him such an impressive writer, in your opinion? Randy, you can start. Sure. Uh, that's a, you know, big it's question, but, yeah. <laughs> but I think there's a lot. Yeah, I think there's a lot to touch on, though. And one is just um, the depth of his curiosity yeah. uh, and the the absolute vastness of his imagination. I mean, I one of the things I think is so interesting about King is that he's a popular fiction writer and that um, mm-hmm. 
that used to be a phrase that I think pre-Harry Potter had a lot more stink attached to it. And he uh, clearly has some, I think, lingering resentment for uh, the idea that any books that sold a lot were typically sneered upon by sort of the critical cognizante of yeah. like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, specifically, like somebody like Harold Bloom, uh, who was sort of, you know, basically the world's most famous critic in a lot of ways, and um, who hated King. And so uh, that's changed a lot over the years where I think um, what was literary and what was popular, and obviously Harry Potter had a lot to do with this, is blended. But I think one of the things that you'll notice about a lot of popular fiction writers is that they're easy to pin down. And that doesn't mean they're not good. It just means they have kind of a specific beat, like Tom Clancy, you know, he writes about, um, you know, government subterfuge, things like that. Uh, Anne Rice wrote about vampires and creatures and things like that. Um, uh, you know, like the, uh, Lee Child writes like the Jack Reacher books. I mean, these are guys who have specific characters and specific themes that they always touch on. King was always a little bit weirder. Like even Kuntz like kind of had, uh, like Kuntz was a, was a, was strange and him and Crichton were actually similar in that way, which that they, um, they had a breadth that was bigger than a lot of other popular fiction writers, but it mm-hmm. doesn't touch King because King's yeah. books are all over the place. All and over. he very, yes, he very, he revisits, uh, perhaps ideas or set pieces occasionally, but none of his books are really the same. You can't really point at one and say he's just, uh, treading old water. He's yeah. really not. And, um, and I mean, this is this, the guy who wrote The Green Mile also wrote it and also wrote, you know, um, uh, like Road Work, which is a Bachman book about a guy who, like, doesn't want to lose his house, you know? And I yeah. mean, I think if you read a lot of his short stories, specifically in, um, Night Shift, you'll see a lot of uh you know stories about like loss like there's this um the last rung on the ladder is just, is a non-supernatural story about losing your sister and then um the woman in the room is a non-supernatural story about uh losing your mother and and dealing with uh watching someone you love be in intense pain and wanting to stop that and um so, you know, his work has such a breadth that I think is so impressive. And and then the thing is, he can turn out really beautiful sentences. Uh, but he also has this sort of connection to pop culture that mm-hmm, yeah. a lot of uh, literary writers don't have. And I'll say that that's sort of a blessing and a curse. <laughs> Because sometimes yeah. it'll, it, yes. especially in his early work, it, it does help it feel more urgent uh, a little bit. Like, well, it can also feel pretty cringe at times, too. But like, you know, you read The Dead Zone and you feel like this is a guy who has his finger on the pulse of, of politics and paranoia as it existed in the country at that time. But, you know, that's, I think, shifted a little bit. Like, if you read his latest book, Billy Summers, which isn't a bad book at all, he's got like two pages where a character watches The Blacklist on NBC. And you're like, I don't know if I need this. Dude. <laughs> and so, um, so, you know, it's like... Like, uh, you know, so it's, that's, I think, uh, part of him just getting older, but, but the thing is he, it's, it's this curiosity, it's this sense of humor and it's this, um, you know, deep well of knowledge. I mean, he's such a smart person and a lot of people don't give him credit for it is, you know, he can talk to you about the, the literary classics, the stuff you learn about in, you know, English 405 or whatever. Uh, but he'll also, you know, he's just as influenced by, um, by, uh, the comics he read when he was a kid. And he, he was never ashamed of that, even when he was younger, whereas he was told by everyone, people in college, people in the newspaper papers, critics, everyone, that, uh, you know, his work wasn't to be taken seriously. That kind of work wasn't to be taken seriously, but he never really uh, abandoned his love for it. And I think because there was money in it and he realized that uh, because, you know, sometimes, and he's reckoned with this in a lot of his early essays that, um, you know, I think he struggled with the idea of being a popular writer because that stuff does sell, but it doesn't necessarily get you respect. And the thing that he kind of earned, although it took him decades, is that now he is, 
you know, one of the most respected writers ever. Um, but even if you listen to our interview that we just did on Losers Club, you can tell he still has a chip on his shoulder about a few things um, because I think for so many years he didn't get respect. Yeah. So I think uh, right. that's sort of, you know, long winded, but I could go on, trust me, but I'll, I'll pass it over to Lauren. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Joe really likes Stephen King because he likes the stories, obviously, but also he's the biggest Red Sox fan in, in history. <laughs> and yeah. Joe's like, if I meet Stephen I King, I'm talking to him about the Red Sox. Right. You know what I mean? And and like, yeah. if my fiance can talk to him about the Red Sox. I can talk to him about, I don't know, ultra terrestrials. And like, we're all going to have a good time. <laughs> You're going to yeah, have a great Lauren, time with Stephen uh, King. <laughs> what do you think makes him a good <laughs> writer? <laughs> um, I mean, Randy took the words right out of my mouth as far as like being able to cover literally everything because I think the biggest thing for me was learning and okay this is also a little nitpicking at Jeff Myers because my dad growing up who I said was teaching me about Stephen King was really only leaning on the horror side which of course I appreciate because look where it, it got me today being so fascinated by the world of horror but it took me so long to know that Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile were tied back to Stephen King and those are two movies that we also watched in our house so often growing up. Still to this day, I can't watch Green Mile without shedding all of the tears. And I can't get through the book without shedding every single... You know, it's like, I could not believe that those stories were tied to the same man. But then at the same time, I'm like, of course, because there's so much character building. Which brings me to like, that's the main point of why I think he's so impressive is the way he builds characters. And I know there are other Mm -hmm. authors who are very good at that as well that we could go on about. But I like that specifically in the horror genre, he really builds up the characters because I think it makes all of those, you know, jumpier, more terrifying scenes that he sets up for us. They mean more and they terrify Mm -hmm. us more because we are connecting with the character so well. And I mean, he has so many stories that only involve two people that you can obviously get heavily involved with. But then you get something like The Stand or Salem's Lot, where it's like there's going to be many characters. And even in the short instances we meet them, there's a connection somehow. Like, I still will leave the book at the end being like, man, we only knew that character for a second. But I totally understood where they were coming from, how I could relate to them, blah, blah. And, you know, also just bringing the outcasts out, you know, making the nerdy kids, the kids who were bullied coming out to be the main characters. I feel like I hadn't really seen that done before until some of Stephen King's earlier work. And I I love that the outcast had a voice. And I love that that also is its own form of terror, kind of bringing back your childhood trauma and memories, because I know I was bullied in middle school and a little bit in junior high. And so I read some of those stories and I'm like, yep, I am cringing just reading this sentence right now. (laughs) Remembering. Remembering it all. He just, he paints such a beautiful picture of his characters. And I, I really like that where it's like, they're characters that are going through a lot. Almost all of them are, you know, struggling with something, which I know we'll probably jump into more of that later, but like they're sympathetic characters at the same time that we can relate to. And I just, I think he does it in such a, a special way. Yeah, ignoring the sheer volume of work he's put out, there are a lot of people that release a novel a year. But I always look at the first decade of his career alone when he was publishing novels. And like in the first 10 years, he published Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Stand, The Dead Zone, Firestarter, Cujo, The Running Man, Christine, and Pet Cemetery. And those aren't even <laughs> the only books he published in those 10 years. Those just so happen to be the books that everyone in America has heard of because they yes. are literally some of the most famous horror stories 
of all time. Yeah, and mm-hmm. just the fact that they all came from the same person is just kind of wild to think about. And you know, like I said, that was just the first ten years. He's right. he's been giving us work for fifty. And I also like. Listeners, if you haven't and you're interested, even if you're not necessarily a Stephen King fan, because my friend Kelly just listened to the audiobook and she does, she doesn't read Stephen King, but she just listened to um, what is kind of his memoir. It's it's called On Writing, and when I read it, one, it's just so funny, it's so wonderful. I also feel like the universe conspired to create him sometimes, like when. <laughs> When I look at like his life and like the way that he's brought it into everything and just with all of his characters, characters that have substance abuse issues, characters that have uh, that are writers, characters that have abandonment issues, uh, characters who are children seeing other kids die, which happened to him when he was a kid. And, and it, what you were saying, uh, Randy, earlier about like the um, the horror magazine thing and like yeah. the era in which he grew up was also perfect to create him too with like horror yeah. magazines coming out the twilight zone like it really was just a bunch of things that were like this is making a perfect person for it what he's like going the to perfect do perfect formula <laughs> yeah. to make him yeah and you're right like everything he's been through has then come out in his books in different ways and it's like mm-hmm. i'm so sorry you went through all of this trauma but also thank you but because this book is genius kind of glad it happened yeah you know there's <laughs> There's really not a lot of mystery to him, honestly, which no. is something yeah. that's, I mean, there is to, there is like to some degree, but like we have a series called Archives in our Patreon where we read um, uh, a lot of his unpublished or uncollected or more rare works and we discuss mm-hmm. those. And that's actually proven to be, that series has almost evolved into discussing, uh, you know, life details or, or eras of King, like things that were happening to him personally in a more in-depth way than we can get into in our book episodes and elsewhere and um but the thing is uh, like by and large though on writing is an is a wonderful book but it doesn't need to be that long you know because it's a pretty short book yeah. because he wears uh, his heart in his sleeve in a lot of his books and yeah. a lot of these stories are so autobiographical and um and i think that's kind of astounding too in a lot of ways is that you know people are always like where are the biographies on stephen king and i'm like well i mean I think if you just read his books, you got a pretty good idea of who this guy is. Yeah. There's obviously more layers. And I think, uh, you know, specifically if you, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about in 1999 when he was hit by a van and he almost died. Yeah. Um, that is that is kind of a really, really pivotal moment in his life. And, and just exploring the time right before that and the, the kind of months and years after that, there's a lot about King. There's a lot of darkness there and there's a lot of... Um, and I don't know, there's a lot of humanity to unpack there that is he touches on in on writing, but um but you know, when you dig through the actual news articles and some of the interviews that followed those years, there's a lot of really interesting stuff there that um that you wouldn't realize is manifesting in his work, but it really does, you know. Wow. So interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. The only other thing that I was going to touch on is just the fact that, you know, you uh, you look at a lot of writers who have uh, works the size of his and the characters that they write through, 
usually being close to uh, who the writer is for for these types of writers that have, you know, uh, a book a year. And the fact that, you know, I mean, he was 25 at the time, but a 25-year-old man who can write a story from the point of view of a 15-year-old girl and like an incredibly intimate and relatable story to me, a 15-year-old girl reading it is incredible like that that's something that i i don't get to see that often but with that all being said we'll talk about some of our favorites so let's start with the novel favorite stephen king novel if you have one randy you can go first that's that's always it's always hard for me to say my absolute favorite if i if if gun to my head i would say pet cemetery uh i think pet cemetery is is easily in my mind his scariest book and it also has to me the the cleanest and most potent metaphor. I think one of the things about King is that um, he always will have, you know, he he thinks about plot over theme and metaphor, which I, he talks about that in on writing, which I think is a very smart way to write. But um, but okay, but sometimes I think he does feel the pressure to um, kind of put a bow on things mm-hmm. in terms of uh, thematic. Uh, yeah, what did it all mean? Yeah, and I think that's why a book like Dreamcatcher is such a mess. Yeah. Whereas I, I, there's a lot to like in that book, but he really kind of tries to connect all the dots by the end, and uh, it doesn't come together, even, despite how much he tries. Whereas Pet Cemetery is one of the cleanest, most potent metaphors I've ever seen in horror. I mean, just the general idea of, um, uh, you know, why it's you quoted it earlier. It's like sometimes dead is better. That's all you really need to say to mm-hmm. sum up what that book is about, and. He he plums and, and excavates and sort of peels away at that little sentence in such horrifying ways throughout that story. And it's his bleakest story, probably, which is another yeah. reason I love it, because <laughs> sometimes I think he, he kind of throws in a happy ending when he hasn't quite earned it. Um, but yeah, uh, I love that one. But, you know, I got to throw out like there's a lot of others that I I absolutely love. Like Needful Things is one I come back to a lot yeah. uh, because I love ensembles. Like you mentioned in Salem's Lot mm-hmm. uh, and The Stand. Those I love his ensemble books is a, a lot. Like Under the Dome even is a great Latter Day yes. one. Uh, he like in in all those books usually the the main character is the least interesting one. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> like the, you get the great the rest, ensembles. <laughs> Right, but everyone else is so interesting, yeah. and I love those kind of books. So that that's those are those are big faves for me too. But then you know, it I think obviously from an objective standpoint is probably his masterpiece yeah. because it really does sort of synthesize I think everything that he's good at. Yeah. And um, well, I say synthesize; it's a twelve hundred page book, but you know, <laughs> it is sort of an uh, a grand you know a magnum opus in a lot of ways, I guess. And um, and the character uh, you mentioned bullies earlier. I talk about this in my pod all the time. So so if any of my listeners are listening, I'm sorry for talking about it again, but I, I, I'm always on the bully beat, right? Because I love the way he writes bullies. Yeah. And um, Henry Bowers in It is easily my favorite Stephen King character uh, because he's the scariest character, I think, in all of Stephen King. And and that's what uh, King does so well is he uh, he can find he can find humans who are scarier than uh, interdimensional beings. You know what I mean? Yes, At least in absolutely. my opinion. No, the bullies are so, so scary. Yeah, and I have a lot of thoughts on bullies that I won't get into, but I'll just say that those are some of my favorite stories um, right there. So, Lauren, it. what about you? Do you have a favorite? I know. I hate the word favorites in everything. Like, it is not even just in, in I know, books and like, movies. Ask it's, me, it's so hard. What day of the week is it? <laughs> I You'll know. get a different answer. 
The favorites are so hard for me because it honestly changes too. But I, I hate to be repetitive, but honestly, Pet Cemetery is one of my favorites too. Yeah. yeah. And it's for the same reason. I was like, ah, does Randy actually understand me for once? Because Ashley always criticizes <laughs> me for being too dark. So not criticize, but you just know that I'm a little I know that you I'm like a dark to go person. There. Yeah. <laughs> I like to get really dark. And I I also agree that I love that Pet Cemetery is just fucking dark and it, but it's also such a well-written story and i actually enjoyed both movies i know the second remake got a ton of shit but i actually enjoyed it and whatever we can pick it apart but i liked that as well and i of course loved it even as massive as it is it's one of the few that i have read twice it and the shining i have and so i think that goes to show if i'm like willing to pick up that huge book again and see the movie multiple times i must love the story and Ashley, you'll be so proud because I hadn't finished it when we did our vampires episode, but I finally have gotten through Salem's Lot, which is why I brought it up because I have been dying to finish it and actually contribute to conversation because I feel like Ashley brings it up every time we mention vampires. I'm like, I'm trying. So I did it and I really (laughs) enjoyed it as well. (laughs) Yeah, for me, it it will always be up there simply because it was my first novel, not just Stephen King novel. It's the first novel I ever read. So it's got to be, you know, special for me. And I I did reread it as an adult and realizing as an adult, like, nope, this is just as scary, if not scarier as an adult was very like (laughs) validating for me as a 12 year old. I was like, okay, cool. I wasn't a little pussy because it's terrifying (laughs) and it's interesting to me too that that you know like you guys are doing with the losers club like revisiting things from your childhood because at 12 the scary parts were the giant bird and the clown and the werewolf and then as an adult you're like oh my god bevy's father is sexually and physically abusing Mm -hmm. her and like holy shit this homeless man with syphilis is trying to rape eddie like it's horrific but at the same time the that's not even the reason that it's my favorite story of his it's it's the the theme of friendship and like the unbreakable bonds you create with friends that you grow up with or friends that you experience trauma with, like trauma yeah. bonding. Um, you think of soldiers and firefighters, like that sort of bond you have with someone that's almost unspeakable when you go through something horrific with them. And he's just, mm-hmm. the way he writes about the connection that those kids have But, uh, Randall, what you were saying about, you know, the characters uh, being one of his strongest points, something that King's novels often center around are good versus evil heroes and villains. So I do want to discuss them. And I want to know your favorite Stephen King hero and your favorite Stephen King villain. And yes, they can be the same person. And don't (laughs) worry about repeating yourself. Randall, you can go first. That's a great question. I mean, I already said uh, Henry Bowers uh, from It. He's probably my favorite villain uh, in a lot of ways. But I would also say I'm I'm a sucker for his bullies. Uh, Mm -hmm. The character Ace Merrill from uh, The Body. And also he returns in Needful Things. Uh, He's not in the movie, but he's in the book. He is... um, a fascinating character and uh, the the glimpses we get of that character across those two books and then in glancing mentions throughout other Castle Rock books, mm-hmm. they really do build um, a really compelling portrait of sort of a small town bully 
who, um, you know, basically gets swept up in things that are much bigger than him. Uh, and so, and then Randall Flagg obviously is a wonderful yes. villain. Uh, and, you know, he obviously manifests in a lot of different King uh, stories in a lot of different ways that are sometimes confounding, especially if you read the um, the Gwendy trilogy that uh, he's been cranking out recently. They're sort of a flag or flag adjacent character, depending on how you want to look at it. And, um, it's pretty interesting stuff. And then, uh, in terms of heroes, that's actually a harder question for me to answer because if the, there's one thing that I think King struggles with to some degree, it's, it's writing compelling heroes. Uh, but of course, hero is a flexible term. Yeah. I guess when I hear hero, I think of a character like, like Ben Mears from Salem's Lot or, uh, you know, Barbie from Under the Dome. These, like the kind of good guys or yeah. like Stu from The Stand, right? Like the good guys, right? And those are usually his least interesting characters, but I would also look at somebody like Jack Torrance in the the uh, book of The Shining uh, as something of a hero, even though he gets possessed because in the end he does have, you know, spoiler alert, he has sort of a a moment of clarity that I think is really beautiful that is not in the Kubrick version, which is part of why King hates that version. Yeah. Um, And because for him it really... Dick Halloran is a hero. Yeah. Yeah. He's a hero too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in King, like, and that's what I love is those... My favorite books are the ones where those can be a little bit uh, flexible. Although I think King does have sort of, and this is where it gets a little bit murky, is that his characters contain multitudes by and large, but the stories are usually defined by notions of good and notions of evil. Mm -hmm. It's just that there is, uh, you know, there's evil in every person, but there is, um, I think, a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There is sort of a lack of human will uh, that I think distinguishes someone as either, you know, good or bad. And The Stand is obviously the the most um, clear uh, clear cut example (laughs) of that because there is, you know, literally you are split into good and evil. And I think that's the best part of discussing The Stand. We had a lot of fun in our episode doing that is is talking about what that book and the story and the adaptation say about what makes a good person and what makes a bad person. Because in the book, it is pretty it is pretty complex, but it still comes down to light and dark, right? Yeah. And so, uh, so I don't know. So I appreciate that uh, because sometimes I think there's almost too much empathy in modern horror <laughs> where I'm like, sometimes just give me a monster. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, like, I don't need to feel for every villain and everything I ever see, although it is nice occasionally. But uh, that's why sometimes... Sometimes I like a story like Christine where it's just an evil car. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, where we don't <laughs> have to talk about to like, <laughs> yeah. But what do they want? It's like, I don't care what they want. Yeah. It's scary. It's a fucking haunted car. <laughs> it's a haunted know? car. It's, it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I think that's, I think that's my answer there. Yeah. Lauren? Oh, gosh. I mean, there, I feel like there's so many villains, but it really is true that the humans are so much worse than the monsters because the first one that comes to mind for me is, but I'm struggling to remember. I was trying to quickly Google it. And of course my computer is letting me down. Is Carrie's mom's name Margaret? Uh, yes. yes I think yeah. Margaret is boy, oh boy, horrific. Like to have as a mother. Yes. Just the mm-hmm. way it's like the abusive, like horrible mother, but also, I mean, the way she comes across in the movie is also very scary, but just the way she's written too, you're just like, oh my God, can I just, I can't. So uh, she mm-hmm. comes to mind first. She terrified me when I was younger. I mean, still does, if we're being honest. And then also coming to mind, Percy from The Green Mile also. Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. He's a monster. <sighs> just a vile human being. And then I know this is an easy one, but also I've read it recently because it took me years to finish The Stand because it's oh so large. But I mean, Randall Flagg, I think, is just such a wonderful 
such a wonderful villain, as we've been saying. I just read The Stand for the first time. It was on my Kindle for almost a decade. You just read it too? Yep. Uh, Over the pandemic. Yeah. I had never read it. And like, you know, it was just one of those that just never, I think I had tried to start reading it because like I said, it was on my Kindle for 10 years. So I think I had started and stopped several times because there was, when I, I yeah, when I did start reading it, I was like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, their blood's coming out of their eyes. Okay. But (laughs) I had just read it for the first time and I actually have never seen either of the series of the stand oh shit so i the plan now is i want to go and watch both of them back to back starting with the one from the uh was it the 80s or was it the 90s the 90s 90s wow you have no idea how important that 94 version is to me and here's the thing man i will not blame you if you laugh your entire way through it because (laughs) it is that's the thing is I have a lot of feelings about it. We, it. We've covered it so much on the podcast. We did an episode when we did um, you know, our stand coverage back in like 2017 or so. Yeah. But we also, at the beginning of the pandemic, because we're just absolute monsters, we we <laughs> did a four-part series uh, talking about <laughs> each each part of the uh, of that. And then we also covered the miniseries on um, you know, Paramount Plus or whatever. Yeah. We covered that extent. We did episode by episode recaps of that. So I've discussed the adaptations very, very intimately and very complicated feelings. But I will say it's like, it's hard for me to know what it would be like to watch the 94 version as an adult, having never seen it, because so much of my feelings about it are colored by nostalgia. Totally. It's so hard when you're introducing it to somebody else. And I I will be interested to see how I feel about it. I really want to... I really want to hear your thoughts on it. So I constantly think like if when I get like questions from people, they're like, if you could invent anything, what would it be? And I always say I would take a pill that would make me forget a movie. Yes. So that I could watch it for the, it for the first, first time, time. <laughs> Gosh, and like yes. throw a pill in there for books too. I'd reread books for the first time. I know that for magic me, feeling. My hero um, is. Danny Torrance and especially after the addition of if it was just The Shining probably not but um, Dr. Sleep yeah there was just something about that novel that hit me hard for those of you who don't know um, Dr. Sleep brought us an adult version of Danny he's all grown up he still has the shine, but he's learned to, you know, kind of control it. And he's found ways to use it to help people. And I I love that Stephen had him working in hospice care and helping dying people pass on as someone who's always wanted to be a death doula. There was a cat named Azriel that they called Azzy oh, because I, I had one too once. So <laughs> sweet. Um, I, you know, I love that despite living through the trauma of having an alcoholic and abusive father, he still found himself abusing substances and becoming what he always feared and hated because you and I, Lauren, talk a lot about generational trauma and also, you know, uh, people that do fall into the same patterns as their parents. Like there's almost like a, a one or the other. You either grow up to never, ever touch alcohol or you grow up to have the same issues. And it's like that with all sorts of, of um, you know, mental health disorders. So I, I thought that was very interesting and, and I, I loved reading about it. But I will say I've been becoming increasingly more and more in love with Holly Gibney after Mr. Mercedes, that series, and The Outsider. So I'm really excited ah. for his upcoming book because he, he's writing a book about Holly now, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you read If It Bleeds, the the novella collection? No, I haven't. He's got a good story about Holly in there. That's Does he? the okay. title story. Yeah. That was actually the story that made me like her the most was If It Bleeds, yeah. 
I'm, I'm really into it. And I, I like the idea that he kind of seems to play with a little bit where it's like, is she a hero or a villain? Right. Mm. In the end, like that's how, an, yeah, how is she things. going to turn out in the end? If we get to see, you know, what she evolves into. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I feel like I've, I, I've always been pretty obsessed with the idea of people who have a sixth sense, like Danny and, and yeah. Holly have possibly because I relate to it. Having seen and heard and experienced strange phenomena my whole life, there's probably something there to psychoanalyze, but who has the time? (laughs) So for villains, though, the villain that affected me the most was probably Mrs. Carmody from The Mist. Mm, Mist, Oh, my God. She scared the ever-loving shit out of me. Of all the monsters and demons and ghosts Stephen King has written about. I love, didn't we, do all three of us pick just normal people yeah we did yeah mm-hmm. we sure yeah did. as our, our favorite villains and this is why i need you to jog the memory because absolutely she is up there yes. yeah she's terrifying a religious zealot who starts a cult in the middle of a grocery store yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh as far as the movie i mean marcia gay harden mwah, delicious yeah. what a great performance so but I read The Mist in uh, about eighth grade, and at that same time, I was still in Lutheran school. And at that same time, I was butting heads with a lot of people, my teachers, my pastor, my mother, on the idea of religion and God. So I was ripe for the scaring with that one, <laughs> with that lady. <laughs> Stephen King is obviously most well-known for his stories, but not always specifically his novels. In fact, there are a ton of people who don't read his books at all, but I guarantee they have seen his movies. So, question one. What are the best and worst Stephen King film adaptations? Randall. (laughs) Mm. I mean, it's such a hard thing to say because I think it's, it's, uh, for me, it's, you know, King, King will say that his favorite and the best adaptations are the ones that hew close to his books he said that when we talked to him a couple weeks ago Mm -hmm. um that's not that's true i think by and large because i think you have to sort of have a respect for the work that i wrote a piece for a publication called the outline a few years ago about how the generation that grew up on king they're now adapting movies and their movies are a lot more reverent than a lot of the stuff that came out in the 80s and 90s of him because those people didn't grow up on king they were sort of some of them loved him like rob reiner obviously uh was a huge king fan and made stand by me which is probably in my opinion the best king probably so but you know most people i think were just trying to make a buck off him so there wasn't a lot of passion i think to a lot of those adaptations whereas that's a little different now although i will say i think it's starting to change a little bit as as the stephen king ip grows and there's a lot of uh, duds out there yeah. but um i mean if i had to choose my favorites it would be stand by me um and the shining the kubrick shining which i think is brilliant even though it's a far you know cry from the book it's yeah. just an incredible movie um yeah. But uh, but I will say Doctor Sleep was a isn't a movie I would say I'd revisit very often. But I would say it's one of the more impressive uh, adaptations yeah. in the sense that it it sort of ha- it has that tricky the tricky thing of having to reconcile like the Shining movie and book and the Doctor Sleep book, which mm-hmm. are all at odds with each other to some degree. Like yeah. because uh it's it has to serve as both a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and King's The Shining and also 
uh, honor the story of Dr. Sleep. So Mike Flanagan did an incredible job in terms of reconciling those things, I think, while honoring all three of them. And, um, you know, for me, with a King movie adaptation, it's it's. I think sticking close to the story helps, but Mm -hmm. for me, it's really about capturing the essence, which again, it's a totally sort of ineffable thing that you can't uh, quantify. But, um, but there is like, I would even say the 94 stand is not uh, a grand achievement in storytelling or filmmaking, but I would say, I think in a lot of ways it captures the essence of, of, um, of that storytelling mode of King, which is the, the ensemble and the Epic. Uh, There is something in that, story that or that adaptation that I think really does speak to um like the general vibes of King yeah which is a little bit silly but also and a little bit earnest but also you know uh ambitious I think and also um you know scary at times there are moments in that that is corny as it can be at times it is uh, pretty creepy so um and then worst adaptations I, my, my, I think my least favorite thing I've ever seen that is a king adaptation and this is saying something because there's a lot of bad ones is probably the under the dome TV series which yeah. I just despise I think it, it is rough I think it's a cynical and sort of um uh it's it's also just sucks like it's not yeah. good and then yeah. and then it all but it also like tries to to turn up it it, it it tries to take a book that is pretty self-contained, you know, both literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. and tries to turn it into IP. And there's something really cynical about that, and I don't enjoy it. And I mean, that's the problem, right? Is And this is something we're encountering constantly with new adaptations, because everything has to be a franchise now, and everything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that's the thing about Hollywood is they're desperate to turn King into IP. His name is IP, but they want franchises, right. and he doesn't give that to him except for The Dark Tower. And The Dark Tower, they've tried and they've failed because it's so ambitious. Yeah. And, um, and uh, and you know, I think they just keep hiring the wrong people to do it, except for, we. I will say, the unaired Amazon pilot. We have an episode about it, and we talked to the creator. I think that was had the most potential of anything to be a good Dark Tower, but they axed it. So, yeah. um, so you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to say there, but, um, but you know, even the new Firestarter that came out, which I didn't think was as bad as everyone said it was, um, they were also trying to set up a sequel. Like yeah. everything has to be IP now. They're trying to do that that uh, it prequel on HBO, and maybe it'll be good. Who knows? But yeah. King King kind of scoffed at it in our interview and some publications oh, really? picked that up because he well he was just kind of like I don't really care you know it's yeah. like he's like I have it's nothing not to my do with story. it and he's like <laughs> I'm not into it. This is like it. the forming of Pennywise, right? Isn't that what, yeah, what yeah, is the prequel? And that's the thing is he's, he only glances at that in, in such a compelling way in the book that I don't right. want to know more because I love what he gives totally. us. And I so, was going to why do we need it? <laughs> I, well, and my whole thing is I'm just like, I don't trust a bunch of modern TV writers to give me yeah. the origin of one of the greatest villains of all time. Like, you know, like I want King to give me that if somebody's going to give me that and he's not involved. So I'm, so I'm more I'm a little interested cynical about that. Yeah. in HBO's uh, The Overlook hotel series that they want to do because sadly that has been axed it has no (gasps) really well i think some of the people that were working on that went to the dairy show so because i think that and the thing is 
that that Overlook show must have been bad if they canceled it because yeah, that is like say. slam the dunk potential. IP right there. Jesus. It seems like it would be really great. Especially if so. you did take, you know, because there's so many things with, um, you know, obviously uh, when you ask people about, you know, what your favorite adaptation is, a lot of people will say The Shining and then a lot of people will mm-hmm. say absolutely not The Shining. It, it was not Steven's <laughs> story at all. But there yeah. are some little things that if you read The Shining after you watch Kubrick's version that are so brilliant like for example the shot of the the dog costume mm-hmm. you yeah. know it's explained like you you can actually go in and read the book and find out what the dog was all about and so like having an overlook series i think would have been would have been really interesting but yeah say la yeah, vie what about you lauren what are your favorite adaptations and you know worst <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh i feel like all of mine will be hot takes but i'm gonna put them out there anyway i absolutely love carrie i think it is so well done in sissy spacek it's just mm-hmm. oh she's perfect, perfect. In it. um also stand by me i mean you have to love it and it also brings in just those four boys like the the friendship that we were talking about well before. when like, anytime I love you're that. you're making a movie that that focuses on on children as your main yes. cast is a a gamble totally yeah those four kids are incredible i mean some of the best performances i've ever seen yeah yeah i still can't believe that jerry o'connell is one of them and every time they tell me that's him i'm like (laughs) you're a liar and a thief because that is not jerry o'connell but oh my god my jerry o'connell that's not my jerry yes i love i will love stand by me forever it is so well done um also misery like just slap me over the face with it a million times i will watch misery forever i think kathy bates is so perfect in it and it honestly is like what i wanted after reading and um also this is the one that i think will be a hot take i really love 1408 oh i like 1408 Okay, good. Thank, uh, I, I prefer that's the, one the I was, short like, embarrassed story, to but say. I, I like uh, sure. I, I, yeah, I thought <laughs> funny it was story. Well done. In 2017, I did a pod. I did a podcast um, appearance on a friend of mine's show here in Chicago, and I just started Losers Club. And he's like, "When you do 1408, you got to have me on." And I was like, "That'll be like three years from now, dude." And it's been five, <laughs> and we're we're only about to get to it this summer. And wow. he uh, and he. I'm still going to have him on because I promised him at the time I'd do that because he says it is his favorite horror movie of all time. Wow. So I'm like, I want to hear your take, man. Okay. I'm man, I, can't, it too. I was like, I can't wait to listen to that because I do really enjoy it. I would not give it that same credit. So. <laughs> I think we all feel that way. Yeah. yeah. So it'll be fun. It's like, it's good, but. It's good. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> we tried to get, enjoyed we it. We tried to get John Cusack and he won't do it and we're annoyed about it. Oh, yeah. No kidding. That's, your, annoying. that's your exclusive that I'm going to give you guys is uh, we tried to get John Cusack and he uh, is completely disinterested in coming out. Oh, podcast, come so. on. Very annoyed about it. Well, I'll try to get him on ours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'll He's say yes to He's a Chicago guy. You should, he should want to be on our podcast. Right? Whatever. Well, we definitely have more of the pull, so don't worry. We'll handle it. <laughs> I guess for worst, it's hard because, like, top of my list, it also was not a good book. And, Randy, I think you brought it up earlier, but Dreamcatcher. Oh, yeah. I... I feel like I had hope in because of the cast, and then it was like, nope, still not good. So yeah. that comes to Dreamcatcher was on my list too. I yeah, it made I me think sad. one of the best adaptations I've seen might be 1922. It's really good. That movie seemed like it was word for word. I mean, I I had yeah. read it 
I, I haven't reread it since I watched it, so I, I absolutely could be wrong. But um, as far as I can tell, that was pretty close and also a really great movie if you are okay with slow burns. I know a lot of horror fans want want a little bit more action, but I was I was totally down with it. I didn't love Dreamcatcher. And <laughs> yes. I <laughs> I did not love this year's Firestarter. Um and I had yeah. reread it to come talk about it too, so it was so fresh. And I I a lot of the reboots, like Carrie, Pet Cemetery, Firestarter, it chapter one and two were pretty close. Um but the recent reboots seemed to me to stray the most like i i keep yeah. thinking when they remake christine it's going to be like a tesla whose ai has gone haywire <laughs> and it's like that's a different that's literally story. what they did with child's play yes yeah where it's like that's oh not charles gosh, lee yeah. ray really that's a fucking computer chip malfunction like that's a different <laughs> story if they make Christina Tesla, we're lighting something on fire. <laughs> well, like, you know they are—they are doing a new Christine. I it's a—it's uh, Brian Fuller, the guy who did Hannibal. Which I, the other guys are excited about on my pod because they like Hannibal. But I've—I'm—I'm—I don't dislike Hannibal. I've—I just haven't watched it. Right. But I'm not a huge like Fuller head otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm—I'm I'm skeptical, especially because I think the the Carpenter Christine is pretty solid. It's not perfect. It, the end is kind of a mess. Of but. course, yeah, they did. Yeah. You know. <laughs> what they could there at the end but i i do i think that um, that's actually i was gonna say my all-time favorite stephen king adaptation is christine i just think no one has ever made a car be that scary and no one will ever be able to make a car that scary again Mm, Um, i agree and i know there you know like i said there, there, there are talks of it being remade but honestly watch the original it's it's stephen king it's got great performances an amazing score Winner, winner, chicken dinner. I fucking love Christine. <laughs> We're doing a film festival in Chicago, a Stephen King film festival this fall. Um, and we're hoping to get Keith Gordon from Christine uh, to come ooh. by. So, yeah, we'll see if it happens. But, you know, we love Keith Gordon. So question number two <laughs> on the films. Why do you think it seems so difficult? And we kind of we did kind of cover this. But why do you think it seems so difficult to adapt his work from page to screen? Because oh, I feel like there well, are think, more duds yeah. than there are. Well, because good and, ones. you know, you mentioned this earlier. Uh, like the characters are so well drawn, and yeah. it takes re- and like you know anyone can sort of can you know take a plot and put it on page, but it's capturing the essence of the characters and what makes them special. Yeah. And uh, a lot of that has to do with performances. It has to do with um, with the writing and all these other things. I mean, and you know, honestly, the funny thing is, King is not the best adapter of his own work. Like no. yeah. that's something we've talked about a lot on the pod. Is and you know, we just talked about the Dead Zone pretty intensely, and and there was a great quote from one of the screenwriters or maybe it was Cronenberg himself and he was basically like like Steve's draft of the dead zone was was really kind of uh, gory like unnecessarily gory and like not character driven which is like what we wanted from him like because I think he loves the when it comes to movies and this is very apparent especially when you look at Maximum Overdrive is he loves the big bangs you know zoom uh, uh, gore like he wants he sees the cinematic experience as a very uh, big broad and silly one by and large like Mm -hmm. or at least that's what he tries to create and uh, like he wants to thrill the audience I think he's a little scared about giving them intense 
intense character stuff. That's something he'll do from the, in the books. Well, so I think sometimes in his uh, screenplays, he'll he'll sort of veer from the stuff that makes his characters more compelling in favor of more spectacle. Uh, but I mean, he's you know we think that we're we're actually defenders of the 90, 1990 Pet Cemetery movie. We think it's pretty good. I like um, it. It's a not. Bit. Yeah, it's <laughs> not brilliant. Like it. <laughs> Some people hate it, and so um, and then the he did the Lisi story. Uh, yeah. series on Apple, which is a dense watch, but it's it's it definitely captures the book, um, and it has some cool stuff in it, but it's kind of a dense dense yeah. watch. But yeah, yeah, I I was going to say that too many of them focus on the horror elements and not on the soft, gentle, sentimental, the human connection, <laughs> the sides which are in our opinion his best sides. But you know, totally. it's also hard to. I think to bring the scares because to when life. you're when yeah when you're reading about a giant bird chasing a small boy you know you mm-hmm. you've got your own head movies <laughs> and right. they are scary and then uh-huh. you know when someone else does it I mean completely ignoring the fact that most of it has to be computer generated horror these days which automatically takes away a lot of the scare factor for me Absolutely. sometimes mm-hmm. it's just silly like in the shining there was no maze in the book. It was actually a lawn full of like trimmed bushes. It was the big topiaries yeah. that are shaped like different right. animals and creatures and they attack Jack Torrance and it's so scary in the book because like they don't move if you're looking at them. Yeah. And it's like the, I love that. the weeping angels from Doctor Who and if you look away they can move and bite you and shit and it's so scary but that is ridiculous to put on film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just look at the miniseries. Yeah. Here. It just won't come across. It just won't. It won't come across yeah. as scary, at least. Right. It'll come across as something. Scary's I was going to say, I think that's part of the reason that it chapter two didn't come across as well. I think it was. But again, I don't know if I can blame the filmmakers. I still really enjoyed it. I feel like, Ashley, you liked it a little less when we talked yeah. about it last. But I felt felt like all of the CGI of the monsters that were trying to come to life just like was not yeah. it was not coming across and how I wanted it. Whereas in the first one, there was a lot more scare. I actually thought the first chapter did a better job of adapting the book. And I was sort of like, oh, these were some of the things I was imagining. And it was a lot more about the characters, as mm-hmm. we've been discussing. So I it, that felt like King. Whereas in chapter two, I was like, oh, these CGI creatures are just not like my imagination was so much scarier than what they put on yeah. the screen so that, well, I think, it's tough um, the losers club you guys actually talked about it and you put it in a way that that i think is correct with the with the it chapters one and two they kind of did themselves a disservice by splitting it the kids in one movie and the adults mm-hmm. in the other because yeah. that was something that was so great about the book is is going back and forth between the two definitely yeah. And that was, I think, a huge problem that they had because, yes, we did know these characters, but, like, we didn't know them as adults. Like, if you met me Mm -hmm. as a child and then met me as an adult, those are two completely different people. Like, you have to reintroduce them, and I don't feel like they did at all. They just sort of were like, remember? Remember Beth? Remember? And, the, remember? and the thing is, like, the kid's storyline is just so much more interesting than it the adults. It yeah. is. Yeah. Again, yeah. the first one was just better because of the story. But also, it's like, I it could have been harder to do to make the best movie doing the back and forth. And I think with Lisey's story, didn't they... I don't know if this is true. I actually haven't watched the series on Apple TV, but I thought I read that, like, they don't do, like, the storyline the same way 
that the book did. Is that true at all? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Structurally, it's they they do change it a little bit. I think it mostly works. It's just like there is something sort of languid about it, which I think also extends yeah. to the um to the book itself, which King says is his favorite book he's ever written because I think he associates it with his wife quite a yeah. bit because he wrote it for her. Totally. But uh, it's to me, it's a tough read, and it's okay. um, there's parts of it that I think are wonderful, but um, but you know, it's 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 incredibly long <laughs> as is the uh, as is the series. It is long, but I somehow read it, and again, I don't know if that's just like the dark, depressing side of me, but I thought it was so fascinating, and I liked that it was tied to when he came home from the hospital and saw mm-hmm. that his wife yep. had kind of moved things around and was like, oh, this is what it would be like if I died. Like, that is such yeah. an interesting inspiration. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, which is why I also think he has such a connection to it. It's, it's you know, it's one of those stories that I think came really from really deep in his soul, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, one thing I think we have to at least mention in this episode is the Stephen King universe. Before the MCU... Stephen King was creating his own universe inside his novels where you'd get to run into characters from other books in the other novels and places. Because so many of his books not only take place in the same towns and times, they also seem to take place in the same world. So just general discussion, how do you feel about the shared Stephen King universe? Are you a fan? Not a fan? Do you have any favorite crossover moments? Yeah, I always loved it when I was younger. I I I think I lost a little bit of enthusiasm for it as I've gotten older because uh just because he does it all the time now. Yeah, <laughs> like right. every every book of his has crossovers. Like it, Billy Summer specifically has sort of some very overt ones as does later his um the book you wrote before that. Both good books, but I almost don't need the crossovers. Right. And mm-hmm. um and I think it's it can be good, but it can also be a little distracting, or it can sort of remind you of better books. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And um, but but I will say, like there there are times that it's ex- incredibly satisfying, and I think I mentioned like Ace Merrill earlier, right? Like mm-hmm. him popping up in the body and then returning in Needful Things. Just the, the dissonance between the two versions of Ace that we see says so much about who he is as a person, and it's incredibly powerful to me. And um and yeah, so I kind of appreciate that aspect of it. And I think at times it's done really well. I mean, just Castle Rock always worked well for me because all those characters are so vividly drawn and the way he spreads them out um, and uh-huh. constantly references the history of Castle Rock. Like, yeah. like you know, the events of Cujo, the events of Dead Zone, those ripple throughout the later books, like Needful Things and even a lot of the novellas, like um, uh, the, the, what was it, the... The dog one, I'm forgetting the name of the sun dog. The sun oh. dog, like that's a good that's a good uh, uh, Castle Rock story. And so, yeah, those are it's it's cool the way that he that he can do that and build this town that really does feel uh, populated by real people and who have real lives, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think I like it, but it's lost. It feels a little bit more like um, like you know, in movies when there's just references for the sake of references. Yeah. Like it's not actually interwoven into the story. I kind of feel like King's doing that a little bit in his later books. Just because I think he enjoys the sandbox that he's For created sure. and he likes playing around in it. But, you know, especially in the 90s, I think that was when I liked it the most because it still felt relatively novel. Like, I'll always remember the reading the um, afterword in Wizard and Glass, which is my favorite Dark Tower book. And he sort of me- he teases uh, the larger multiverse and how it's going to incorporate into later Dark Tower books at the end of that book. And I remember being thrilled by that. Yeah. Like, that was the sort of thing I... I 
I was on message boards reading people talk about their <laughs> theories, you know? And, uh, and it, I think that was when it had the most pull and power for me was, was then, but now it kind of feels like uh, second nature, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I do like sometimes, you know, it does seem almost as if he's in, in the case of like Holly Gibney, for example, Mm-hmm. where those are two completely different stories and, and her involvement in them are, are completely different. But it almost seems like he wrote the story and then he, he was like, I like her and I got to see her again. And stuff yeah. like that I really enjoy because I felt the same way where I was like, I like her. And so when right. I did read The Outsider and she was there, I was like, no fucking way. That's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she's like his Jack Reacher now. I yeah, feel like. I do too. And I don't mind. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'm in. Those are the kind of books he loves to read too. Because mm-hmm. I, in our newsletter, I, I always chronicle his recommendations. And he, you know, he's one of those guys who loves like the, uh, the, the dime store paperbacks of like, you know, the, the continuing adventures of this character, you know, by this one author. Yeah. And uh, I think he, I think in his old age, like he loves reading that and he wants to have one of his own. And that's what Holly is for him. That's a good way to kind of summarize it. I don't really have much more to add than what you guys have said is I think he's getting to the point of he's just having fun with it now. Like before, maybe there was a little more thought behind it and like, oh, these have to cross over for this specific reason. Then as time has gone on, it's sort of just like, hey, these are all my people. This is the town I've made. And like, let's have a little fun with it, which he has every right to do in his 70s still writing away. So I like it. I think it's fun. Yeah. Especially, I always like when there's like a quick crossover, like a meet in passing, and then you're just like, oh, I saw that little nugget, which is a good time. (laughs) One of my favorite realizations came through when I read, and I'm not going to apologize for it, I love 1122.63. I loved it. You do? And I won't apologize. Hey, you don't have to. I'm just surprised Um, because I didn't. I feel like I'm usually on your same page. Yeah. Wait, 1122, the book? The book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every I feel like that's one of his most celebrated later novels. I'm just surprised to hear you like. Uh, every time I bring it up, every time I bring it up, they're yeah. like, Ugh. I don't think it's like, hated. I, I wasn't it. into it. I'm in the minority for sure. Yeah, I do love that book. I, I love it. And uh, um, it's definitely one where like Joe, when he read it, he was like, I can't keep reading it. And I was like, keep going. Like it's one of those <laughs> where like it's so satisfying Just when you finish it. it. It's so good. But I and I'd obviously read um, uh, stories before with some crossover characters or crossover locations, you know. And I know one moment that stood out to me, though, um, is in Dolores Claiborne. She has this moment of like psychic abilities and she sees a woman tied to a bed and it's so split second. They don't even revisit it. And you, you find out obviously um, later that it was uh, Gerald's game. So, yep. but yep. in eleven twenty two sixty three, the main character Jake has traveled back to Maine in 1958. And at one point he makes his way through uh, Derry. And uh, he's at a bar. He hears someone bring up a psycho dress as a clown terrorizing kids. And that's already like, ooh, like so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) But then he's walking through um, and he runs into Bevy and Richie. And Mm -hmm. this takes place basically after the childhood events of it. But he runs into them and they just have a small exchange. But he notices something different about them and they notice something different about him and that was my big moment of realizing that the shine made famous by the shining obviously but the shine is something that a lot of steven's characters have some of them Mm. have a lot of it like danny torrance holly gibney johnny smith and the dead zone but 
I think even Jake has a bit of it. And, you know, Charlie and Firestarter has some of it. Mother Abigail in the stand references it directly, which I didn't know at the time because I just read the stand. But she says, my grandmother used to call it the shining lamp of God, sometimes just Mm -hmm. the shine. Oh, yeah. So the shine is my all time favorite part of his universe. And I think it's it is the connector to every one of his stories, because even if they don't have, you know, Jake doesn't have a psychic ability, but he does. There is something different about him. He travels through time, you know, so pretty in a way (laughs) he is a psychic because he can tell you what happens after that day. Um, So I love that. Okay, let's we have time for one more question. And this question's mostly for me because <laughs> one of my favorite bad movies to consume, we've mentioned it a little bit. Um, it's a little ditty from 1986 called Maximum <laughs> Overdrive. And this is a movie based on a short story by Stephen King called Trucks, where all the cars, trucks, buses, planes, trains, and automobiles of the world come to life and become killing machines. And uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the only movie Stephen King has ever directed. And after this masterpiece, he vowed to never direct again. But I disagree. (laughs) I think Stephen should absolutely direct again if it means we get to watch a soda machine kill a grown man and a steamroller Mm. roll over a bunch of little leaguers. And also (laughs) ACDC. Does the soundtrack. I was about to say the soundtrack. <laughs> so, <laughs> so good. My question for you guys is, <laughs> if he could have directed any of his other works that have been made into a movie or not, which one would you have wanted to see and what rock band would you do the soundtrack? <laughs> is it wrong to say I want to see him take another stab at Maximum Overdrive? Nope. Like, no. What if... <laughs> Try it again, What if man. he could do it Let's better this time? Yeah, I want to see what happens. And instead of ACDC, do like Guns and Roses. So we're still along the same line, but a little different. Yeah. I don't know. I'll take it. I would love it. I would also like to see Salem's Lot directed by Stephen King. I yeah. just, I don't, I, I don't know. I think I would like to see the way he takes his words and puts them into a movie. I, I can't even explain it more than that. I just like, I think he needs to be moving people around in that one. I don't know why. The weekend can do mind. the soundtrack for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Randall, yes, do you have weekend. an answer? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I never had my moment with Maximum Overdrive. Other guys on the pod, they like it a little more than me because they they watched it when they were yeah. young. I didn't see it until I was older, so that was just one I always missed. So I, I I don't think I have any nostalgia attached to it, and I I just kind of see it as like a headache of a movie. Kind of. <laughs> but um, but and you know he was so coked out. I was going to say it. that he'll, movie he'll, is fueled by cocaine. That's yeah, why we need and, one with sobriety. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I'd love to see a sober adaptation of the one I, I thought about this question quite a bit. And the, what I landed on was The Long Walk. Do you know The Long Walk? Yes. Uh, I don't yeah, think I the, do, his, actually. It's a Bachman book. Uh, oh, it's okay. my favorite Bachman book. And I'm not a big fan of his Bachman stuff, but that that one is about, it's kind of a dystopian world in which, uh, you know, like I think a hundred boys uh, walk and the last one who makes it sort of, you know, is uh, is kind of granted a blank check by the okay. uh, supreme potentate of this world. And it's it, it's a but it's a it's a story about friendship and about um, uh, male bonding. And even to some degree, I think a friendship that borders on romantic love mm. and lust. Mm-hmm. Um, 
among boys. And that's sort of a, a subtextual aspect of it that I'm not even sure King was fully aware of when he wrote it, because he wrote it when he was extremely young. And uh, and I think it's a pretty straightforward story that contains a, a lot of, I don't know, a lot of areas to explore. But it's, it's also a relatively muted story in a lot of ways, despite the fact that there's a lot of, you know, violence in it. It's... It, it's it's really about these conversations that unfold between these boys as they're walking. And I would love to see him do something that's sort of the, the polar opposite of Maximum Overdrive and, and be like, can you do something... Uh, a small character driven piece, you know, yeah. like a piece that has a relatively small ensemble, really character focused and also really about, I guess, like dudes, like male friendship. Right. Because I, I, you know, I mean, I, King has tried to be more diverse as he's gotten older, I think rightly so. I mean, his early work. You know, you can see his evolution in terms of becoming more culturally aware. I mean, he was a small kid and he grew up, a, you know, poor in Maine. He right. wasn't he wasn't born in the upper echelons of New York or something. So he, he had a lot of biases and a lot of things to get over in his work, and he'll openly admit that. But, you know, he always did, though, write male friendship really well, especially young male friendship. I mean, Stand By Me is a great example. Uh, you know, it Bev is obviously a wonderful character, but then you see so much uh, great interactions between the boys. Yeah. And Dreamcatcher, even some of the best parts of Dreamcatcher is the way he sort of captures the male friendship in the early part of that book mm-hmm. between these four guys. And so I'd love to see him, you know, if he could transmit that uh, cinematically uh, with this story, which has never had a film adaptation. Reportedly, there's one in the works by Ooh, the guy who did, uh, what's it that. called? Yeah, the autopsy of Jane Doe, the guy who did in the scary stories. Movie. Oh yeah, he's yeah he's supposedly directing it. I'm not sure where it's oh. at right now. Sadly, Frank Darabont optioned it and wanted to do it. Uh, you know, the guy who did Shawshank and yeah, Green and the Mist. Like, he's so good at adapting Stephen King, so that oh, is sad he's the that best. he's not. Yeah. yeah, him and Rob Reiner were the ones who got King the best yeah. out of all the directors. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I interviewed Darabon a few years ago, and he basically is like, because, you know, he helped co-create The Walking Dead, and he had a really bad relationship with AMC. And I think it there was a lot of legal acrimony, and I think mm. he kind of said, fuck it, I'm done with Hollywood. Like, his legacy's intact. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. He's like, I'm out of here. Well, I still can. <laughs> yeah, he described it as he was like a World War II plane that, you know, landed with its a broken wing and a broken wheel and everything and he just wanted to you know live his life in northern california yeah uh, away from hollywood yeah i think he was really burnt out because and it's sad because i i try i asked him i'm like you know i know you had optioned the long walk and he's like yeah i had to give it up because i knew i was never gonna make it you know because he's like he's like it's just not gonna happen yeah and it's i mean he's got a wonderful filmography behind him but i think he got so burned out by modern hollywood and um so yeah i guess that i would love to see uh i guess like yeah it just comes back around i would love to see king sort of you know explore a character-based piece and so yeah i thought of the long walk the long walk is so good i was like yeah. i reference sorry the last thing i'll say about it ashley i just wanted the reason i know about it is again because of my dad but i i described it actually recently to somebody because i was like it felt like the pre like hunger games or squid game which i know is dramatic because mm-hmm. it's a lot less intense than those but i feel like it almost like paved the way for those kind of that same idea of like this contestant of following rules or die. Yeah. Fighting to the death, but it's in such a more character driven way. Exactly what you said. So I do think seeing that movie come to life would be so special. Yeah, I do. I do feel like I could be making this up. It's been a while since we talked about it, but I do feel like Suzanne Collins might've, might have uh, noted Long Walk as an inspiration for Hunger Games. I could oh, be wrong, really? but it, it it makes total sense. I mean, that does make it's sense. like so easy to see it in the DNA of that show of that yeah. that book series. Yeah. 
I was going to say something that's happened a lot recently. It happened. I read something on The Mist that was wrong and the remake of Firestarter that was wrong. And it would probably happen with The Long Walk, too, (laughs) where like someone was like, um, Firestarter, this looks a lot like Stranger Things. And it's like, first of all, okay, okay. (laughs) Read a book. But the, I, I read that I with know. The Mist, too, where it was like, oh, Stephen King obviously doesn't like Christians or trust our military because, and it's like, that book was written in like 1979. He didn't well, write it today. <laughs> well, that's such a funny critique, too, because like, well, I will say when he did write it, he did distrust the military Absolutely. and Christians a lot more. These days, if you follow his Twitter account, he is the biggest Joe Biden fan on the planet. So Loved him. it is... Uh, <laughs> yeah, he has he has softened, I think, a little bit in his political paranoia, Definitely. which is so, I love that about his earlier work. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how he feels about Christians these days. I think he mostly uh, stays away from it. But it's uh, but it is I love to I love it whenever he writes about religion. I find it I find his like uh, Desperation is a great book in my opinion. A lot of people don't like it, but that's a great exploration of his view of um, of God through the lens of sobriety, and then merging that I think with Christianity. So yeah, I've heard yeah. him in a few interviews you say like god i believe in god i just don't believe in religion you know what i mean and that's kind of you know lauren and i uh can relate to that quite a bit but um the movie i would have stephen king direct would be dreamcatcher because dreamcatcher was bad but not in a good way and if it's going to be bad it might as well be good. So I would have loved <laughs> to have seen what wacky things Steven did with aliens coming out of butts. And I think the yeah, Mr. Gray Jonesy hybrid would have been cock-a-doodle-doo. And he would have been real <laughs> over the top with the army. And I don't remember his name, but the psychotic officer who Morgan Freeman plays in the movie. And I uh, Yes. And I chose to give the soundtrack over to Twisted Sister, so I did stay yeah. in the same. <laughs> I stayed in the same. Yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't say a soundtrack. I'd say Bruce Springsteen. Oh, Bruce Springsteen th- yeah. for Long Walk. Ooh. Okay, have the boss That's actually for the perfect. Long Walk. I'm That's into perfect. it. I'm into that. <laughs> you guys nailed it. So that is actually all the time we have this week for Keep It Weird. But thank you guys so much for tuning in week after week, and thank you so much, Randall, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a total blast. We couldn't have created a better guest for this episode in a lab. (laughs) Everyone, please check out the Losers Club podcast if you want to hear more in-depth discussions on the works of Stephen King. But as you were saying earlier, it's not just about Stephen's literary works. They discuss his movies. Um, I know you guys have done episodes on Stranger Things. You do episodes on other works of horror. You just did a Jurassic Park episode. like. (laughs) <laughs> that, oh. You did a yeah, Jurassic Park episode. I can't wait. <laughs> well, that was uh, yeah, that was a Patreon. Up, we had this series called The Crate, and it was basically like our patrons could vote on movies yeah. that we um that we talk about, and they wanted us to talk about Jurassic Park, and we we unlocked it for June because we're we're taking a little sort of yeah, it's Blockbuster Month, which is our way of saying we're going to unlock some of those movie episodes and take a little bit of yeah. a break. We're still doing new episodes, but uh, but you know, just to kind of direct people towards there, so we don't have a ton of like. 
I'd say pretty much everything in our Patreon and beyond is Stephen King or Stephen King adjacent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But like we'll talk, we talk a lot about things that are inspired by him. Like uh, Stranger Things is one example, and we have a spinoff right now uh, going through the seasons because we're we're pretty big fans of that show. And uh, but yeah, the Jurassic Park episode is awesome. It's just <laughs> I can't just, wait. You know, I think listen. I think we're stretching it a little bit when we say finding Stephen King in in <laughs> Jurassic Park. It's like no, we just want to talk about Jurassic Park, so. <laughs> which is is fair and it's fine. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's something for everyone there, even if you haven't read every single book. That's very true. Join us next time as we venture into some true crime with a twist. But until then, please follow us on Instagram at KeepItWeirdCast. Follow Randall on Instagram at Randall Colburn and his podcast at The Losers Club Podcast. And make sure you check out our Patreon to get bonus episodes of our show, discounts on merch from our merch store, and a monthly newsletter full of weird news, stories, upcoming movies, books, and video games, and so much more. Randall, what should our sign-off be this week? Uh, long days and pleasant nights, which is what we say in the Losers Club. Hey, long days Aww. and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. And keep, keep it weird. You want a balloon, Ben? They float. They all float. Come here, son. You'll like it down there. You'll never have to grow up. Ha, ha, ha.